It's Thursday, the 5th of November, and welcome to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical implications in this time of pandemic. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a research fellow here at the Hoover Institution, as well as a Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism, and it's my pleasure to be your moderator today. Now, this is month number eight, I believe, of doing Goodfellows. We started this in the beginning of April, and those of you who have been along uh, for us on, on the ride uh, all along, we appreciate your participation. Those of you watching for the first time, what you're about to see for the course of the next hour or so is a spirited conversation with three Hoover Institution senior fellows, or good fellows as we jokingly refer to them, uh, talking about what may uh, lie ahead in these uncertain times. Let's meet the good fellows, beginning with John Cochran, Johnson Economist and the Rosemary and Jack Anderson Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. Hey, John, how are you today? Doing great. And you know, your, your intro reminds me, I look very much forward to the time we can do this in person. We'll have to do that uh, when COVID is all over. Yes, amen to that. Our second good fellow joining us from his wilderness outpost is the renowned historian and author, Neil Ferguson. Neil is also the Milbank Family Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. Neil, how are you holding up today? Very well, uh, because, you know, sleepless nights due to an election are the same as sleepless nights due to having two small boys at home. So I'm permanently in this state. It doesn't make any difference to me whether we have an election or not. I'm tired. Yes, I thought you were going to sleepless nights from three boys on a sugar high since last Saturday. But uh, yes, there was an election. We're going to get to that in a minute. <laughs> Our third good fellow, last but certainly not least, is Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. General McMaster is the Fawad and Michelle Aljami Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. He is also the author of the New York Times bestselling Battlegrounds, The Fight to Defend the Free World, available on Amazon. And yes, Christmas is approaching and it'll look great under the tree. Right, H.R.? How are you today? Right. No, nothing says happy holidays and Merry Christmas like reading about all the problems in the world. So thanks for that plug, Bill. Good to be with you guys. Speaking of problems in the world or problems that may be resolved soon, uh, we are doing this broadcast late in the morning uh, in California time, 1015 or so on the West Coast. We don't know the final outcome of the presidential election, but the path would seem kind of obvious at this hour. Uh, Joe Biden has a much quicker road to 270 uh, than Joe Biden, than uh, Donald Trump does. Uh, Trump could get to 270, but since we are a quasi-Stanford operation, let me put this in a Stanford context, and that would be the big game of 1982 between Stanford and Cal, where Stanford scores uh, right at the end of the game to go up 25 to 20. They then um, do an they didn't kick off the ball the last play of the game. It's a squib kick. Cal recovers the kick and then they lateral the ball about four or five times to improbably go in the end zone and win. Now, if you believe that Donald Trump can either win Nevada, overturn Arizona, overturn Wisconsin or Michigan and win Pennsylvania and win North Carolina and win Georgia, then he gets to 270. Otherwise, it's a very easy path for Biden. So we'll go on the operation. We'll go on the assumption that Biden is going to be the next president, but we're not going to do a very deep dive into the implications in Washington. We'll save that for future shows once this is official. But today, let's talk about the election and just what we know that we didn't know 48 hours ago. Neil, why don't you kick this off? Because I know you've been doing some commentary on it already. You had a lot of thoughts going into the election as what may or may not have occurred. So what do you know now that you didn't know then? Well, uh, Bill, those of uh, you who read my my regular fortnightly columns know that I've been a skeptic of models uh, of elections that draw heavily on opinion polling. And I've argued uh, consistently that uh, this would be a much closer race than the opinion polls were predicting with enormous uh, margins. You know, in the national polls, remember, 
they had uh, Joe Biden uh, further ahead uh, going into this election uh, than, uh, than Barack Obama was uh, against John McCain in 2008. Uh, eminent political scientists who shall remain nameless uh, to spare their blushes were telling me that Biden would get 353 electoral college votes. Well, as we speak, he's on 253, which is a little bit outside the usual margin uh, of error in political science. And, and I take from this uh, that we, uh, we had a, an election as close as uh, the election four years ago uh, with margins in just a few states in the tens of thousands likely to decide the outcome. Uh, this is uh, not going to be, I think, the 1948 scenario that I wrote about uh, last week where the incumbent underdog, uh, Harry Truman, snatched victory from the jaws of defeat. I think we uh, aren't going to get that scenario, but Donald Trump came terribly close to doing it. And by the way, if there hadn't been a libertarian candidate, uh, Joe Jorgensen, uh, then Trump would likely have uh, locked down Nevada, uh, Wisconsin, maybe also Arizona may turn out to have uh, gone against him by just the margin uh, of votes the Libertarian got, uh, which again reminds us of four years ago when third party candidates played a significant part in helping Donald Trump to victory. What does this all mean? This was way, way, way closer than it should have been. We're in the midst of a pandemic that the president's generally agreed to have messed up. We've had a recession of extreme sharpness, even if we're coming out of it. Uh, the incumbent should have been roadkill. Uh, and the fact that it's as close as it is, so close that we still don't know for sure what the result is, is an indictment of the Democratic Party's strategy, which has been disastrous. They really have screwed this up. And at the very least, it looks to me as if they're going to be in the extremely unusual situation of having won the presidency, but not the Senate. Now, that hasn't happened to the Democrats since, get this, 1884, when Grover Cleveland faced a still hostile Republican Senate. So I think the story for me of the last few days has been that the Democrats really blew this. They should, they should not have been this close to 1948. John? Um, so first, I, I hope your forecast of a, a uh, swift resolution one way or the other comes true. We are, of course, much closer to the nightmare scenario we've all been talking about for weeks of a protracted legal battle. Uh, um, you know, the Florida 2000 happening in 10 states at the same time. Uh, but let's, let's hope that doesn't happen. Uh, I think the big lesson, there's a big lesson down ballot. So um, uh, whoever wins the presidential election, the Republicans keep the Senate. The Republicans expanded uh, in the House. The Republicans did not lose a single state house. If anything, it looks like in the state governor elections and the state representative elections, they are expanding. Uh, Republicans expanded. Miami went, uh, Florida went Republican. Uh, Latinos and blacks are voting for Republicans. Uh, California, though deep blue, uh, I looked down the ballot initiatives, uh, pretty much California voted pretty much exactly the way I voted on the ballot initiatives. Uh, they turned down every property tax increase. They turned down an effort to uh, remove from the state constitution the provision that the state may not discriminate on, on race. 
this is a, a dramatic failure of the far leftism that infects so much of uh, the Democratic Party. Uh, we've talked about, you know, where's the Democratic Party going, the, the woke millennials versus the Woodstock generation. The nation as a whole just, uh, just turned down the far left. And no matter who, even if Biden wins the presidential election, uh, especially with the Senate and Republican hands, but also with its limit, this is not a mandate to do anything, especially not the Green New Deal, massive taxes on the rich, Medicare for all, to say nothing of rewriting the constitution, packing the Supreme Court, adding states and all the other stuff they wanna do. Uh, so this is this is an incredible repudiation of the, the woke left that, that inhabits university campuses, but not even the mind of the average uh, California voter. It is, in a way, it is a, if you're a never Trumper Republican, you just got your dream. <laughs> the, the personality of Donald J. Trump exits the stage and goes off to, to start a show on Fox News or something of the sort. But the brand of, you know, everyone keeps saying the brand of Republican is over, it's dead, it's, it's it, no. The brand of Democrat is the one that's in deep, deep trouble, uh, shackled to the, 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 the progressive left wing that most of the rest of the country can't, can't stand. Uh, they, they, the Republic, the women in the suburbs turned out more for Republican candidates other than the president. Uh, so I think that's the big news of the election. It doesn't really matter who won the, what, the presidency is gonna be narrow one way or the other, but, but who lost? We know who lost this election dramatically. And, and that's the extreme woke leftism. So HR, after nearly 35 years in the employment of your country as an army officer, you voted for the first time. So now you've been in the belly of the beast. You have seen democracy up close after decades of swift, functional, efficient military operations. Your thoughts on democracy in the United States, HR? Hey, Bill, I, I think it's it's a cause for celebration. I really do. You know, I know that there are those who are, who are disappointed at how divided we are, right? Because the election has been so close. Well, we really have two Americas. I don't, I don't, I don't buy that. I see the vast numbers and the and the high percentage of Americans that voted. That means they have confidence in our system, and it's a cause for celebration, right? We do have a say in in, in how we're governed, and and I think that of course it was it was peaceful. I think even though it's so contested with the you know the armies of lawyers that descending uh, on on states uh, that that are close and contested, uh, I think it shows the strength of our separation of powers and. And the adjudicative processes that we have in our in our in our democracy. You know what we're not talking about, Bill. We're not talking about about foreign powers or hostile uh, powers attacking our election effectively. That's because we made great strides in, in, in securing our election from from uh, from outside interference. And and to add to to John's points, which you know, if, if you haven't noticed, John is becoming much more optimistic as well uh, as as a result of I think you know, uh, you know this this show um, in particular. But hey, John, I think that another aspect of this is you know, there. I, I think the Democratic Party has doubled down in large measure on identity politics in particular and micro identities in an effort to, to kind of peel off certain constituencies and make them part of a permanent Democratic bloc. That didn't happen in this election either, with a pretty significant per percentage of, of Hispanic Americans and Black Americans voting uh, Republicans. So, you know, I, I think there's cause for some optimism that in the wake of this election, we can bring the vast majority of Americans back together and kind of restore our confidence in who we are, as well as confidence in our democratic institutions and processes. Yeah, I think so, uh, our voters voted for competent government. 
they voted against uh, Donald Trump and they voted against Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> uh, I'm just cho choosing, especially on the left, one particular person. They, they want a sober, confident government and they want the institutions of American democracy. There's this, we've talked about populism and Trump in many ways, and there's two aspects of populism. One aspect is caring about the average person in the flyover states and, and what he or she has to say, which Neil brought up very eloquently on previous things that the, the, the elites of both parties had kind of forgotten about is they, they don't open the windows as they fly from New York to California. But there's also a populist is also someone who maintains his power from a direct connection to the voters, sort of a spiritual connection, me to you. Uh, not through the institutions of a representative republic. <laughs> and I think what we're seeing is uh, that aspect of populism is one that uh, turns a lot of people off. They want to see real politicians and politician means making deals and getting something middle of the road, competent, done, fixing the potholes, not uh, the social justice of the entire planet. I was going to ask you, Neil, one way to look at the election is it's a surgical operation and that voters did not conduct an amputation or a massive dissection of the political body. They removed one part of it. And that's Donald Trump. You look down well, the ticket. Not, they, not, yes. They didn't take out the right? Right. <laughs> right. But they may. They may well. Right. But if things hold up, you look down the ticket. Republicans generally ran ahead of Trump. In Maine, for example, you if the outcome holds up, you have a split ticket, which happens about one in 10 times in Senate races. What does it say, though, Neil, that it was just Donald Trump taken out and the rest of the party? I don't know that that's the right way to think about this. I mean, I, I agree with HR's point uh, that this is actually an advertisement for the vibrancy of American democracy. And uh, much too much is made of, of division. I mean, listen, if it wasn't evenly divided, the two-party system wouldn't work because one party would always win. And that isn't the two-party politics that would be desirable. I'm very struck by the fact that Donald Trump was able to get this close to a second term through a massive mobilization of first-time voters. It was not the case, and this was another thing that the professional pundits and pollsters got wrong, that additional turnout would benefit Biden. It turns out that actually the Republican ground game was more effective than the Democratic ground game in getting first-time voters often from the white working class, but not just the white working class, from the working class to show up and, and vote. This was the highest turnout, as far as I can tell, since 1900, uh, since uh, you know McKinley beat, beat Bryan. That's, uh, that's an amazing uh, achievement. And I'm struck too by the fact that the predictions of the doom uh, mongers, that there was going to be terrible trouble uh, uh, on election day, that there would be these vigilante uh, poll monitors from Trump HQ beating up on anybody who showed signs of voting for Biden. None of that happened. They boarded up all the shop fronts in Manhattan for pretty much no reason, uh, because this, this has gone remarkably peacefully. I, I went for a walk on, on election day and, and had a conversation with uh, an elderly gentleman who made it pretty clear to me without being explicit that he had voted with the kind of split ticket approach. He did not want a second Trump term, but he sure did not want a democratic blue wave. And one has a sense as one uh, looks around the country uh, these days that, that in fact, this has gone far more smoothly 
than the doom mongers foresaw. Now, that's not to say that Donald Trump's not going to cha challenge these results. There are going to be recounts. Uh, the, uh, the, there, there will be, no doubt, some uh, Jim Baker lookalike who will orchestrate uh, a tenacious fight back in, I'm going to say, at least three states. Uh, but what's striking to me is that that initiative, that effort to contest the uh, election is not getting much support from uh, a, a source that John just referenced, Fox News. Fox, to my considerable surprise, called Arizona on the night uh, for Biden. By all accounts, uh, Rupert Murdoch uh, withstood uh, tongue lashing from Donald Trump for doing that. And I do not think that Fox is going to deny that Joe Biden has won if he gets uh, to uh, 270, either via Georgia or Pennsylvania in the next, uh, let's say, 48 hours, which means that the, those elements who want to say it's been rigged, who will follow the president in saying that he's been cheated of victory, are probably not going to get traction much beyond Facebook pages. And I think that's another uh, cause I think for relief. I'm reminded of 1960, actually, Bill, when when Richard Nixon could have fought. Uh, and, and made a pretty compelling case that he'd been cheated in Texas and Illinois, where all kinds of irregularities went on. But he chose to concede. Uh, and, I, and I think it's a bit like maybe this is 1960 without the concession. Uh, it doesn't actually, in the end, uh, affect the outcome. It, it's going to leave a bitter taste, no question. And there will be plenty of people who will deny the legitimacy of the Biden presidency. But that won't be the reason that Joe Biden's a weak president. He will be a weak president if, as seems likely, the Senate remains in Republican hands. Because what's he going to be able to do? He won't even be able to get some of his people confirmed. Never mind the Green New Deal. They won't even be able to do big fiscal stimulus if Mitch McConnell and his men uh, and women set their faces against it. So I think this is a, a remarkable outcome. It's so different from what the professional political class predicted. It's so different from what the liberal media desperately wanted to happen. Uh, they dreamt of this blue wave. They forecast a landslide. And it was an entirely self-defeating prophecy, because I'm sure, going back to John's point, that the reason this didn't happen was precisely because the Democrats overreached, precisely because they hinted that they would actually go after fracking, precisely because they made it clear that they would pack the Supreme Court, precisely because they talked about making D.C. and Puerto Rico states. They said all those things. And the great American public said, you know what, we have our issues with Donald Trump, but we're not going there. But may I, I think you're being, so I'm always the warrior, I guess, because because I do finance where things go wrong. Uh, if this does go to the courts, uh, if the Supreme Court ends up uh, siding with Trump, I think we will see plenty of, of those boarded up uh, stores will be boarded up for a reason. Now, I don't, I agree with you. I don't think it's going to happen. In fact, my forecast is the Supreme Court's going to do its darn best to, to go with Biden if they have any way to do it. Uh, because Trump, this is the downside of being a populist. He has no friends. <laughs> There's nobody. Or, or, to, or to leave it with the states, John, to leave it with the states. Supreme to leave Court it with the states. They're yeah. not going to interfere on the behest of Donald Trump for a for hundred different reasons. Um, but I do think uh, we're, we're kissing Trump goodbye too quickly. There is big news in the fact that even if he loses, he did so much better than anybody expected. Uh, and I think had he just cut down a couple of tweets, it's not just the libertarians, but uh, if he hadn't grandstanded at the conferences uh, about coronavirus, if he had cut down just a couple of silly tweets, like we're not going to respect the election, uh, he would be president, uh, he would be reelected right now. Um, 
lots of people voted for Trump uh, against the advice of the media and their betters, uh, their betters in, in quote, the people who are telling them what to do. I think that's important. They, they held their nose about his personal characteristics because Trump had some quite respectable policy gains. Uh, the economy was booming. He did some very innovative things on foreign policy that I think um, uh, Democrats would be well advised to just quietly keep going. Um, so it's not, it's not quite the repudiation that you're, you're pointing it out to be. They, they sort of held their nose on his personal characteristics, but he did amazingly better than anyone expected him to do. Why do you not see an, an instant um, outpouring? Because there's not much affection for Donald Trump, the person. There's a lot of, well, he did some things and policies that I like, and I'm really scared of the Democrats and the stuff they're doing. But when, when it, you know, if you want to have support for your fight to keep the election, uh, once it looks like uh, all, all the other parts of the machinery in place to protect you from the worst, there's no one who's going to lay down their life for Donald Trump at this point. Yeah. You know, Neil, you mentioned 1960, and you're correct. Nixon did not want to challenge, but people around Nixon did want to challenge. Uh, the chairman of the Republican National Committee started a recount uh, effort in Illinois. They targeted Illinois and Texas. Why? There were 51 electoral votes. I would have gotten Nixon exactly at 270. But Nixon kept his fingerprints off it because why? He would live to fight another day. But yet the president of the United States clearly wants to keep fighting right now. Uh, HR, you mentioned institutional confidence uh, a few minutes ago. And gentlemen, I'd like to pose this to you. How do, how do we reinstall institutional confidence in the likes of the media, pollsters, yeah. big tech, operations with told us, which told us with such certainty that the election would go one way and it didn't go the other? Why will voters four years from now believe what these people have to say? Well, if, if you doubted media bias, I mean, all you have to do is look at the, the, you know, the, the unexpected results of this election and how, how close it was. And I, I think that, you know, for the media, it was optimism bias that, that undercut their legitimacy because they so desperately wanted a, a Biden victory and to see Donald Trump right. gone from the scene. And so I, I do think that this is, this is really an important agenda item for our country uh, is to try to resurrect, you know, the fourth estate. It was never, you know, it was never perfect. But I do think it can it can play an extremely important role in countering the divisive nature of, of social media, for example, and the pseudo media and conspiracy theories. If if more Americans have common sources of authoritative information to come to, I think that can be a force of bringing us together for respectful discussions about substantive issues. So I, I hope the media takes this on themselves. I know some you know some some old fashioned reporters uh, who were very dissatisfied with what's happened to their profession. We've seen that that uh, the New York Times has adopted a particular orthodoxy. And if you don't adhere to that orthodoxy, you get thrown out on your on your ear. So I, I think this ought to be an agenda item uh, going forward. And maybe something Hoover can take on as, as well as, as you know, we have the, the media fellowships. Maybe we can can work on this with, you know, with uh, our fellow Americans that, that are in the media and put together a reform agenda of some kind. Uh -huh. Neil, what say you? Well, I think that uh, we still have some very seriously unfinished business on the role of the big tech companies in, in our public sphere. It's a dis this is an issue we've discussed before, but let me just point out that one obvious consequence uh, of a Biden-Harris victory, if that's uh, what uh, indeed we are going to get, will be that the pressure will be off 
big tech in in truth. But they'll continue, of course, to talk about antitrust, and those uh, cases will doubtless uh, go ahead. But the uh, the noise that was being made by Republicans over Section 230, uh, which I think is the key issue, and that, that of course, is that piece of mid-1990s legislation that gives uh, the big tech companies a kind of catch-22. You know, they're, they're publishers when they want to be and tech platforms when they want to be, and good luck suing them for any harm that arises from their content or from any censorship that they do. I think that issue is going to now go away because it will be very, very hard uh, for Senate Republicans to keep uh, 230 uh, on the agenda uh, if the White House is uh, is not interested. And uh, Kamala Harris's uh, relationship uh, to Silicon Valley is, let's put it this way, friendly. Uh, so they're probably breathing a sigh of relief there. That's bad news because it means that uh, we're going to continue uh, for the next four years with a disproportionately powerful role being played by companies uh, such as Facebook and Google, and to a lesser extent also Twitter. Twitter was most obviously interfering in this election with the way in which it started to censor, edit, uh, and, and otherwise intervene. Uh, the president's uh, own tweets uh, this past 24 hours come with a Twitter a health warning. Uh, these health warnings aren't so frequently doled out to figures on the political left, let's just put it that way. But I think actually there's a bigger problem around uh, around the way that Facebook operates uh, as the most powerful publisher in America, except it's not a publisher. So I do, I do feel concerned that we aren't going to address that fundamental problem, uh, that the public sphere is now dominated by unaccountable tech companies that are only publishers when they feel like publishing and have a political agenda, but they're they're in no way accountable uh, for the way in which uh, they enforce it. Let me let me take this one up. Uh, as an economist, you asked, you know, what will the media do? And as an economist, I think the media will do what it takes to sell papers and ad space on the internet, and to win the favor of the government regulators. Uh, who they need uh, to operate. Now, of course, winning the favor of regulators doesn't mean winning elections. It means winning the favor of those deep in the bowels of the, the government regulatory apparatus, which are uh, pretty uniformly far left. So the chance of a self-directed reform from the media, uh, I think is, is fairly low. Um, um, I think you point to a bigger issue though. So we just had an election that I think really slapped in the face uh, all the sort of elite left-wing orthodoxies, but they still control the institutions of civil society. And that's where uh, that this is, you know, voters in Nebraska can't, and, and uh, South Dakota can't change that. But um, the, the machinery of government, the government employees unions, the nonprofits, the media, the tech companies, uh, our own university, which uh, according to our colleague Alvin Rabushka voted 1836 to 67 for <laughs> Biden. Uh, these institutions are um, pretty well taken over by the hard left and uh, by, it's not the left, it's the intolerant left by a, a view that wants to silence discussion and render illegitimate and immoral uh, anyone on the other side. And that's part of, I think, a larger thing that I think the, the, the discussion of America is, are we 51% majoritarian, throw it down the other side's throat? Or are we a um, republic of a, uh, a, a government of limited powers? 
and uh, strong protections for electoral minorities. And on the these big issues, you know, the, the, the movement to get rid of the electoral college, Colorado passed a, an amendment to uh, basically undermine the electoral college by throwing in with a popular vote a winner. That's just one example. So um, the, the, the fight for the soul of America, uh, both in our uh, constitutional institutions the institutions of our civil society, that that uh, remains uh, the important thing to go on and, and don't count for uh, the New York Times to cut off its uh, to cut off its nose to please its face about being a little more honest about what's going on. You know, what I hope, John, is that I hope that students and Americans broadly begin to demand better because, you know, I, I think those who are on the extremes, they're, they're both intolerant and incurious. And I, I think of what, uh, you know, what uh, Secretary Rice, our director at Hoover, says to her classes oftentimes. She says, just because you believe it doesn't mean it's true. And so I think, I think that you know, students should reject any kind of orthodoxy that they're, that they're, that they're asked to adhere to. And maybe, maybe but we can stimulate, I think, uh, you know, a, a higher degree of intellectual curiosity. And I think when people learn more about complex challenges we're facing, for, for example, uh, that tends to bring people together for respectful discussions uh, that can maybe begin with what we can agree on. Because I think if we just inventory it oftentimes, what we can agree on across the political spectrum, we can get quite a bit done. So I, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, you know, we can be a force for doing that on, on, on Goodfellows, but, but I think every American should kind of take this on. And you know, one, of the, one of the dynamics associated with this election in particular <laughs> that is more indicative of, of division is that if somebody is politically opposed to someone else, it, they, I mean, this is, has been ruining relationships and so forth between, between people. And I, I don't think that you know, we should allow somebody's political leanings to determine you know, who our friends are gonna be. I mean, I think we should really make a concerted effort to come back together. Let me amend what you just said. You said, uh, just because you believe it doesn't mean it's true. Let's just have one, even one step lower. Just because you believe it doesn't mean you should silence somebody who wants to express sure. the opposing opinion. And that's, it's the intolerance that is, uh, uh, people are welcome to not listen if they don't want to and live in their echo chambers. It's the silencing of opposition via social, political, legal, and other pressure that I think is, uh, it, and that's, uh, you know, that's what's going on um, in, in, in our institutions. One last point on the media before we leave that. I, I do think that the complete exposure of the, the woke narrative and identity politics by the exit poll results, which showed that uh, every group had actually increased its support for Donald Trump except white men. I mean, that that's a pretty healthy sign uh, to my eyes. I'm also encouraged by the fact that some of the more dissident voices in American journalism, uh, Matt Taibbi, for example, or Andrew Sullivan, are now finding themselves attracting a bigger readership since they left uh, increasingly woke magazines and began publishing on Substack. Uh, I think Barry Weiss is another of those independent voices who uh, is going to find it a lot more satisfying to write there uh, or somewhere like that than, than to be shackled, uh, shackled by the New York Times editors. There are a bunch of exciting new podcasts that have flourished recently with independent voices like Coleman Hughes reaching a wider audience. So I think as, as the traditional media begin to crumble, uh, pr precisely because they've tied themselves up with woke ideology, there is a flourishing new scene of, of independent journalism out there, and that gives me some hope. 
Neil, you mentioned uh, Section 230, and uh, I can point you to at least two Republican senators who are already running for president, and they will pick up Section 230, and they will go to Iowa, and they'll go to New Hampshire, and they will bash big tech. And that's, in some regards, that's the beauty of America. The 2024 election will begin the nanosecond that 2020 is settled. Uh, let's talk a bit about 2024, since we are a forward-looking broadcast. 2022 will start the minute 2020 is settled. But go ahead, please. <laughs> right. So 2020 will go down in history as the COVID election, the great pandemic election. But gentlemen, what if there is not a pandemic in 2024? And we can go back to more ordinary rules where you don't have to give everyone a mail-in ballot where things are done differently. I want your thoughts on mail-in voting, on ways that we could improve the election for 2024. Do you like the way the things were done in 2020? Well, it's certainly in marked contrast to the way elections happen elsewhere. And I do think that we, uh, we really need to, to give uh, a long, hard look at the way these uh, things are done. I still don't really understand for the life of me uh, why it is taking so long to count the votes in Pennsylvania. By all accounts, the counting uh, process basically halted for 24 hours uh, this week. So there, there's got to be some uh, improvement, but I don't think we should go down the route of, uh, of online digital uh, democracy. Uh, one of the things that really struck me when I was in Taiwan earlier this year, where they held a very successful uh, election uh, with none of the kind of alarms and excursions that characterize American elections, was that it's a pretty straightforward process. Uh, not digital, uh, it was pencil and paper, uh, but it was a relatively uncomplicated uh, exercise. Uh, a Californian ballot sheet is like an exam paper. Uh, it's kind of uh, preposterous, actually, to, to produce a document of such enormous complexity. Uh, and, and I do think uh, that that's something that, as a newcomer to this system, truly blew my mind. Uh, my first true encounter with, with Californian direct democracy. Uh, we can't really get ourselves into this situation again, because the next election will no doubt be close, too. Most elections are, are going to be close, I suspect, uh, for the foreseeable future. We've left behind the time of landslides in the 1970s and 1980s. And so we really need to make sure that we don't uh, end each election with a, with a kind of morass of recounts uh, uh, and litigation and allegations of impropriety. Uh, a country as sophisticated as the United States ought to be able to run elections without necessarily centralizing the process. Like it's good that there should be decentralization. Uh, and I think that, that is a perfectly achievable uh, 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 a goal for both parties. And I, I can't see really to go to HR why we can't have a bipartisan commission uh, to review the way in which uh, presidential and indeed uh, midterm elections are conducted. We can do better. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right, Neil. And there are advantages to a decentralized system in terms of vulnerability. The more, the more centralized the system is and the more automated it is, uh, it's, it's more susceptible to, uh, to hackers and those who would want to disrupt the, the process or skew the process. So it, I, I think it, it is good to have a decentralized system that adheres to certain standards and then, of course, creating venues where you can share best practices and 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 uh, and and adopt them you know, across across states. Already, the the cyber uh, infrastructure security organization is very effective. It's a nonpartisan, just a government uh, organization that has very competent people who work very hard to secure the election from external uh, interference by establishing these standards and working with the states. You know, initially when we started this work in 2017. You know, to, to, to learn the lessons from the 2016 election and to make sure that the 
the uh, the, the twenty uh, the 2018 election uh, went off without a without a hitch. There was some initial resistance from certain states, you know, based on jealously guarding their autonomy over their over their electoral systems. But we saw that break down as as the the sovereign structure security organization works very effectively with you know with the states, and I think they learned vicariously through the experiences of others, and then. All you know, 54 different voting entities uh, worked with the federal government, you know, between 20, uh, 2017, 2018, and then continued that work through this election. So I think a commission uh, that you appoint, you appointed by Congress, for example, would be a great idea. And there's already a great deal of work done by the executive branch uh, at the federal level that could that could easily be adopted. Mm-hmm. Let me, uh, so. Um... The problem with the federal commission, of course, is that we do have a constitutional structure in which uh, these things are run at the local level, uh, which I think is is wise. But let me, I don't think this was the COVID election. Uh, it was procedurally the COVID election. It was supposed to be the election where COVID was the issue. COVID was not, I don't think, the issue. I think um, just about every American voter realized that Donald Trump's handling it, although in his usual style was not that much different than Macron's handling of it or Italy's handling of it or Boris Johnson's handling it or anybody but Sweden and Taiwan, which are, are kind of special. Right. Uh, so, and, and the idea that Joe Biden would have done a lot better, I think everybody recognized, they would have did, uh, screwed it up just as badly as Donald Trump screwed it up. Uh, so in that sense, it was not the COVID election. It was procedurally COVID election. I think um, I, I'm for all voting on the same day with the same information. I think this business of votes uh, being cast months in advance uh, of, of the election, you know, there is something to October surprises. And, and it was kind of funny to read the news about all the interesting things coming up to Monday when 90 million votes had already been cast and nothing could have changed uh, what was in there. So I, I'd like to go back to having all at the same time. I want to say something heretical. I think it should not be completely costless to vote. Uh, and uh, the commission is likely to want electronic law. There's this, there's this mantra that everybody should vote, every voice should be heard. If you can't take a little bit of time off and, and read, the, read the ballot that comes in California, think a little bit about the issues. When you, when you read surveys of what average Americans know about what's the Supreme Court's job, for example. Is it to just decide on the justice of an issue or the constitutionality of an issue? It, practically none of our, our fellow citizens can pass the immigration test on, on how this country should work. So uh, the, the, your commission is likely to wanna to come up with the, the current mantra that everybody's opinion should be heard. And I'm not sure that's right. Secondly, just about everybody else puts in more digital and more security than we do. Every other country, um, you have to have some sort of ID to the way you have to do IDs to do everything else. That as, as well as uh, any test for voting has a horrible racial history in the US, which is why we don't do it, but it is how the rest of the country does it. And as far as the disparagement of digital, Every cent of wealth that you guys have in the world is stored on a computer somewhere. And uh, <laughs> you know, if, if JP Morgan Chase can, can be secure, I, I think elections can be secure too. So we shouldn't necessarily stick with uh, 18th century methods of uh, John, technology. John I, I, John, I would just tell you, if it's connected to the internet, it's hackable, it's hackable. <laughs> I mean, and and you know, the, I mean, the Iranians who weren't very sophisticated got into our financial system in 2007, I think it is. So, I mean, I, 
I just we learned from that, obviously. And you're right. We have gotten much better. But, John, I'll tell you, the the offense has the advantage in cyberspace right now. You know, so I would not. I, you know, I think there's, I, I agree with that very I agree with that very strongly. And it's interesting that Taiwan, which is one of the most technologically advanced governments, does not use uh, digital methods for voting. It's pencil and paper. And, and I really think that's an important lesson to learn. Well, let's leave that as, as a one point of agreement, that there is an advantage of local. There is an advantage of adding up from many small places. There is an advantage of an electoral college in that a single national uh, one person, one vote election uh, is, uh, is much more open to that sort of thing uh, than, than the, the structure we have uh, where, where it's added up from many local levels. And you can go back and see what happened in the, in the five places that really count. Would any of you go along with the concept of a one-day federal holiday election day? Do it all in one day. As as opposed to you mean no more mail-ins and stuff like. like well, that? I think you would have to. I think you would have to probably go back to the way mail-in voting used to be, John, which was you had to prove that you're out of the country, you were going to have surgery, in other words, you know, proven hardship that you couldn't vote in person. In other words, don't make mail-in voting a lifestyle choice, uh, and have a one-day holiday where everybody votes and you decide the thing in a 24-hour space. Uh, I'm curious if you three of you think that's a good idea. I'm also curious if you think that we could pull that off. I think, you know, I think Bill, I think Bill could be just, you know, I'm thinking from, yeah, I, I'm not a voting expert at all by any means, but just the logistics, right? In the military, you're trained that, you know, say a- amateurs do tactics, experts do logistics. I think, you know, that could be a tremendous logistics burden. I'm not sure, but I just, you know, I do think that, that John's point is well taken. You want Americans to prioritize their, their, you know, exercising their right enough to, to make a little effort. But at the same time, we don't, we don't want to create a situation where, uh, certain Americans feel like they, they can't, you know, they can't do it because it's become impractical for them to do it. So I, anyway, I, th- I think that th- there would be a, probably a vast logistical burden to try to do it all in one day. I'm thinking about well, other places in the world that don't have the infrastructure we have, obviously, don't have the decentralized either, uh, you know, the mechanisms we have within the states to vote. And right. they, typically they take multiple days uh, to, to vote in person. We've done it all, all in one day for 250 years without too much difficulty. Um, em, employers typically let people have a half an hour off of work. I, I don't know why we need one more federally mandated holiday just to, to get this done. Uh, so, and, and the, certainly the, the options for remote can be done much more quickly than they are. Right, Neil, let's talk about the uh, the images going into election day, cities across America boarding up, anticipating violence. Um, if we have a swift and clean outcome to this in the next few days, keep in mind that we are recording on Thursday morning um, and Biden is the president-elect. What happens to urban unrest and what happens to cancel culture, Neil? Do people just take down their boards? Does everybody become happy again if you take Donald Trump out of the equation? Or, does this, or is this issue of cultural unrest, is that still going to be with us? I think it will still be with us uh, because in many ways, what's going to happen in the base case of a narrow Biden victory, but a Republican Senate uh, is that on every issue that the left cares about, they will be frustrated. Uh, And if they're not frustrated by the Senate, they'll be frustrated by the Supreme Court. And I can already see, uh, and you can, I think, predict this with some confidence, uh, that taking to the streets will be the way that uh, the radical left seeks to pressurize uh, a Biden administration and to pressurize those who, uh, who oppose its policies. Uh, once people have got the habits, the tactics, and the logistics of, of demonstrating figured out, 
And once they've realized that some cities are so poorly governed, uh, largely by weak democratic uh, administrations, that they can't really police demonstrations and stop them becoming violent, uh, they'll come back for more at, uh, at any opportunity. So uh, if, they, if they find themselves with, with a winner in the White House, uh, you might think that would cause the, the protests to, to abate, but I think that's, uh, that's highly unlikely. I mean, the, there were protests against uh, Lyndon Johnson uh, as well as against Richard Nixon back in the late 60s and, and, and early 1970s. Uh, protesters are, aren't just going to uh, give up the, 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 the tactics that they learned last summer uh, because Joe Biden eked out a win uh, in this presidential election. Right, but John and HR, if Trump is not around, what are they mad about? Wait, this isn't about uh, Republicans versus Democrats. This is about the soul of the Democratic Party. I agree entirely with Neil. They'll be frustrated by their own administration. Let's push, uh, you know, let's get uh, Biden to get moving on the Green New Deal um, or whatever the issue is uh, of the moment. Uh, that's the real battle. And that and it, Neil's exactly right. They're, they're going to keep using protests. And this is uh, an important one for the Democrats to win, because I think a large reason why they did so poorly, even if they squeak out the presidential election, is people are looking at these deep blue cities and saying, do we want to be governed by this? Do, do, you know, is this going to be scorched earth and move on to Washington? Do we want the people who fix the potholes in Washington be the same ones who are presiding over this chaos as the cities? burn and empty out and and it's going to they are going to be unhappy <laughs> and anything that conceivably comes out of a biden administration so i i agree entirely and uh the the protests will keep going it's it's effective and it's not about democrats versus republicans hr i think so i think some people you know uh, most people protest because they feel like they don't have a say in how they're governed they feel like their their vote doesn't work they don't have confidence in the democratic Process. There are some, of course, you know, extremists on on both ends of the political spectrum that really just want you know violence or uh, as an end in of itself. You know, this is kind of the, the far left or the or, or the or the far right. But most people who protest are those who feel like they they're not they they don't have a say. And I think it's it's going to be really important. I think for the president, you know, if he does not win this election, uh, to be responsible about this. You know, to to make statements that. Uh, that, that are supportive of a, of a peaceful transition. So this is, I think, an important responsibility for him. You know, he's a fan of Andrew Jackson. He should take Andrew Jackson's example from 1824 when he won the plurality of the vote. Uh, but then, uh, but then, uh, once uh, once uh, you know, there was a coalition between you know, John Quincy Adams and and Calhoun, and and then you know Jackson accepted the result and 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 uh, and was supportive of our democratic and peaceful transition. I think the same is incumbent on those on the left who who have who have also issued irresponsible statements in in the past. So, I mean, can our leaders can our be our, our leaders be responsible? I think what Vice President Biden has said in the last uh, 24, 48 hours has, has been dead on. It's been exactly the right message to to his supporters, but also to all Americans. I'd like to yeah. see President Trump, you know, give this give the same type of message to to his supporters. I think we need to make a. We've been using the word protest a little bit too. Uh, generally, and I think we need to make an important distinction. After all, it's right there in the Constitution. I, I hope I will misquote it, which I would be embarrassed about. But you know, assemble peaceably, protest yes. grievances—that's right there in the Constitution. I, I think you know when George Floyd was murdered, and, and I've 
watch the tape, I use that word uh, advisedly. I think there are lots of people of good conscience went out to peacefully protest and say, we need to change this system. Uh, and not just how police treat black people, how police treat a lot of us. That is different from the riots. There is then a, um, a much smaller contingent of people who use uh, political violence in order to, uh, try to advance a cause. And it really is within, it's the Leninists versus the Trotskyites. It's, uh, it's, it is within, um, it, 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 that's a very different phenomenon. And I don't want to just use the word protest to, to uh, tar yeah. both. That's a good point, John. It's a good point. Absolutely. So, gentlemen, last question about the election, then we're going to uh, close out the podcast. Uh, your thoughts is where we stand right now versus four years ago. Four years ago, a shock. 2020, what would we call it? A mild surprise, a surprise. Do you, do you feel better or are you a little more concerned about our democracy at this point compared to four years ago? I'm tremendously heartened, actually, Bill. I'm tremendously heartened that the uh, electorate rejected the more radical uh, elements of the Democratic Party's platform, uh, while at the same time signaling that it really couldn't handle four more years of uh, Donald Trump's style of presidency. Despite the fact that we, we vote pretty split down the middle, this is not a split that could ultimately produce a civil war. It's not a clear-cut geographical split. It's not a clear-cut racial split. It's not even a clear-cut uh, sociological split. Uh, we, we have divisions within families, political arguments. I know many couples who uh, voted differently in this election. That's the kind of political division we can actually live with uh, and is healthy uh, because it means that there are arguments around the dinner table. I've been uh, a party to such arguments. Uh, this is actually a, a sign of the vibrancy of our democracy. People have to recognize that the, the system needed the shaking up that Donald Trump gave it because so, there was so much frustration in middle America back in 2016. And I'm struck by the fact that the Democratic Party and the liberal uh, elites in academia and in the media have learned pretty much nothing from their experience. And I hope that they'll take away from this, uh, that if they really want uh, to win and win cleanly, rather than in this uh, extraordinarily uh, shaky way, they need to offer something far more plausible and far more appealing, uh, not only to middle America, but it turns out also to Hispanic America than they just came up with. So this, I think, is uh, in many ways uh, the best of all possible outcomes. I remember confessing to my wife a couple of months ago, and I maybe uh, should hesitate to say this on air, but I'll, I'll go ahead. I said, look, um, if I'm absolutely honest, I'm not sure I can take, I, I'm not sure I can take another four, four years. Uh, of, uh, of President Trump. Uh, right. But if we can retain control of the Senate uh, and prevent the worst uh, uh, elements of the Democratic Party from making uh, the setting the agenda, that, that, that might actually be a, a good outcome from, from this election. So I have to confess, I actually seem to have got what I, I wished for. Not everybody listening to this is going to like me for that. But I, I must honestly confess uh, that if this allows us as conservatives to come up with a candidate for 2024 uh, who is not a wrecking ball, who is a, a builder, uh, then I think we will actually look back and say, yeah, we did get the best possible result back in 2020. John, HR? Yeah, I, I just I just agree with uh, what Neil said. It is a cause for celebration that our democracy works. 
I also think that it is time to get to the uh, to find leaders who get to the politics of addition instead of the politics of subtraction and and doubling down on on a, on a relatively narrow uh, pol- political base. I, I think it is very important, though, that Neil's point as well that you know Donald Trump didn't come out of nowhere, right? And 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 his his supporters were those who believed that that Washington needed to be disrupted. And I agree, Washington did in many ways need to be disrupted. I, I'm struck by watching some of the commentary on cable news. I saw one commentator say, well, you know, these Trump supporters are really atypical. Well, I mean, it was about 50% of the population. You know, that's not atypical. So I think there are still those who are dismissive of those who supported President Trump because they had legitimate grievances and felt as if that they were in large measure left behind by transitions in the global economy in the 90s and then especially uh, in the 2000s. And and this is a constituency that should be important uh, and, and valued uh, by both political parties. Right. John, you get the last word. So I'm, I'm uh, very hopeful about our democracy and I'm very hopeful about our republic. Uh, I think this was as big a lesson as 2020. 2020 was, as you said, the news that there were people that had been left behind. This was the news that all of our people do not embrace the far left. Uh, Victor Hansen used the word peak Jacobinism in one of our previous podcasts. We may have seen that. Um, In 2020, this is the, the big, the Democratic Party, both parties need to rethink who their message is, what their message is, what they stand for. But uh, without Donald Trump's singular personal characteristics, if we go into 2022 or 2024 with an unreformed Democratic Party who spends the next four years blaming those those recalcitrant senators who won't get on board and that blah, 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 and might dog ate the ballots and whatever and the conspiracy and so forth, or God forbid, spends the next four years persecuting Donald Trump legally, they will be shellacked. And uh, I have a, I, I like a loyal opposition. I have great hope that they discover the need to show their ability to reflect what people want, people on good, people on the left, to govern competently and sensibly in a Republican, in the sense of we have a republic, not just a, 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 a direct democracy uh, sense. We are geographically separated. Um, you look at the red versus blue maps, city versus country, state versus state. Boy, it, uh, I'm, I'm glad they're not using blue and gray for those maps. <laughs> uh, and that is why I believe in the Electoral College. That's why I believe in, in the um, minority protections of our republic. And I think it's important uh, to remember that great danger. So we're, we're not out of the woods, but boy, um, are we on a better track than we were um, just a week ago. HR used the word celebration. I'd like to close this broadcast with a different kind of celebration, and that is remembering the life and legacy of Sean Connery, Sir Thomas Sean Connery, who departed the earth three days before the election. Neil, this is your topic, my friend. Uh, Was Sean Connery at the time the greatest living Scot? Oh, without question. And uh, I I met Sean Connery uh, on an occasion when I was able to uh, express my my admiration for him. I, I'd been giving a, a speech at a conference in Lyford Key in the Bahamas, uh, where uh, uh, Sean Connery lived. And uh, uh, the conference organizers said to me, uh, there's somebody we'd like you to meet before you leave, but they didn't reveal to me who it was. 
So I was uh, driven in a little golf cart up to uh, the door of a rather, rather modest uh, uh, house by the golf course and, uh, and was persuaded to knock on the door, uh, <laughs> having no clue who was in there. The door opened and there was Sean Connery, who was an imposing man, even in old age, uh, well over six foot with shoulders that filled the doorway. He was wearing a sarong and obviously in the middle of his lunch. So he looked rather displeased and, uh, and said with that eyebrow of his, yes. I couldn't think at all what to say. I was completely tongue-tied, which is, you know, is unusual for me. Uh, and so I, I, I sort of stumbled out the words, it's a great honor to meet you, uh, Mr. Connery. I, I think I learned everything about how to be a man from watching you uh, in the cinema the Air Odeon as a, a boy. And Connery took this in and shot back at me, oh, that's strange. Don't you know I'm a homosexual? Which was a classic Connery uh, curveball, to which I replied, is, is that why you're wearing a skirt? And we got on famously after that. He was terrifically good fun, uh, wonderfully mischievous. Uh, flirted outrageously with my wife at every opportunity when we subsequently met. And I think was one of the great actors of, uh, of his generation. I mean, everybody remembers Connery for, for his 007, which will never be surpassed. Bond. James Bond. I think partly because the violence was so convincing when Connery did it. He'd been an Edinburgh milkman in the roughest part of that city and in the Royal Navy. He was pretty tough. Uh, but he was also a wonderful character actor. And if you, you think of him in The Man Who Would Be King with Michael Caine, uh, there's a real richness to, to Connery's uh, oeuvre. So he'll be much missed. Uh, I'm glad he made it to a, a terrific cricket score of a lifetime at 90. And, uh, and I would say, yeah, it'd be pretty hard to replace him. Um, but I'm doing my best, Shani. All right, so gentlemen, shall we uh, all retire and uh, go have a martini shaken nut stirred in honor of uh, Sir Sean? <laughs> got a good idea <laughs> very good all right gentlemen thank you for a lively uh, broadcast as always i look forward to next week and uh, we will certainly once we get the presidential election wrapped up we will certainly have a deeper dive into what it all means so thank you very much for taking your time today i know you're all very busy so that's it for this week's good fellows uh, on the behalf of the good fellows neil ferguson hr mcmaster john cochran uh, thanks for watching. By all means, on behalf of all of us, all of us here at the Hoover Institution, stay safe and stay healthy. And we'll do our best here at Hoover to help you stay informed. We'll see you soon. I'm quite sure that a man of your intelligence will see that there can be but one outcome to this affair.